0: If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Probably about 25 years ago, I, I met one, one day with a couple of young pastors who had been in the association for a, a while, not too long, and I had not known them. I had not really had a chance to uh, talk to them or know them. And so we're talking and we're talking about theology and the Bible and About halfway through the conversation, one of them looks at me and says, well, wait a minute, I I heard that you were a liberal. I thought, my gosh, where did you hear that from? And he said, yeah, I I, I thought, well, he said, you're you're no liberal? I don't think so. You know, I'm, I'm a little, maybe I'm a little to the left of Attila the Hun, but you know, other than that. It, it reminded me, when I, when I looked at this text this week, it reminded me how people can have a wrong conception of you, maybe that you've never met, you don't know them, but their conception of you is formed by what others have said. Well, the Apostle Paul has something of that problem, I think, as he writes to the church at Rome. He has not been there. He has wanted to go, but he has not. Been. And Paul, as we know, is portrayed as a radical by his enemies. Uh, there are always those who are uh, accusing him of one thing and another. Uh, and so he wants to correct the misconceptions that the Christians in the church at Rome have about him. And so he shares. Of how he has heard of their faith and how frequently he prays for them. He shares his heart about wanting to come and spend time with them so that he can use his apostolic gift to strengthen their faith and they can use their gifts uh, to encourage and to strengthen him. He lets them know that he has often desired to come, but so far, has been prevented and now he hopes to find an opportunity to come and preach to them. So Paul wants to use his gifts to serve these people that he does not yet know. And he wants to benefit from them using their gifts to serve him as they both labor together for the gospel and that will, it will expand in Rome And beyond. This little this little snapshot we have here in these verses of Paul and of the saints in Rome give us some idea, I think, or a beginning of an idea of what God expects of us. And the overall lesson and the main theme that I have put on this text is this God wants all whom He has saved to be serving saints. Does not, God does not save anyone to be a spectator in the kingdom. All are to be involved in service of some kind or another. Uh, look in verse 9. Paul says, for God whom I serve with my spirit. But it is obvious that Paul is not the only one in these verses who are serving. He begins by mentioning the fact that he has heard about the faith of the Roman Believers, and it is proclaimed across the empire, across the known world. He wants to minister to them, He wants them to minister to Him. Uh, All of those who are in Rome, as we saw last week in verse 7, are called to be saints, and all the saints are to be serving saints. And He tells us something about them in these verses. He says in verse eight that serving saints are known for for their faith. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You notice there is a first, but there is no second. Paul is indicating a priority, not a list. He's not a—it's not a, a bullet list that he's going to go down first, second, third. No, first. This is a priority. And his first priority was to commune with God. Paul knew God as his God. I think, I thank my God. He said, "If you do not know God personally through faith in Jesus Christ, then you are only into religion. And true Christianity is not primarily, anyway, a matter of religion, uh, where you go to church and you go through some rituals." And you keep certain moral standards and that means you are a, a Christian. True Christianity is a matter of coming to know the living God personally by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You trust him to forgive you of your sins and to give to you eternal life. And Paul thanks God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ mediates all the blessings of God to us. It is because of Christ that we have access to God in prayer. And Paul says that he is thankful because your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. Notice that Paul did not thank the Romans for their faith as if it came from then. Rather, he thanked God because he knew that Faith is a gift of God. It was God who had brought these corrupt Romans, uh, former pagans, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They had not done it themselves. God had done it. And Paul heard others all over the known world, the Roman Empire, talking about the faith of the Roman Christians. Meaning they were a witnessing church. They were a church that when they went out and talked to others, they spoke of Jesus Christ. They didn't, they didn't have to employ a, a marketing firm or have an advertising campaign. It was those who were in the church who carried the word of their faith to the rest of the world. They had a vibrant testimony of what God had done and was doing to change their lives. And as people heard of what God was doing in Rome and talked to others, the word spread. So that Paul had heard about them even though he had never been there. He had never visited them. And so his heart rejoiced. Faith in Jesus Christ is the essential thing. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. Paul often will couple faith with love in a number of scriptures. Love for God and for one another is to be the main fruit of our faith in Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say about the first and the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two hang all the law and the prophets. Faith in Jesus Christ is the foundation because it is through faith that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts and to produce God's love in us. So coming down to a personal level, does your home demonstrate faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for God and love for one another? When people think of you, do they think immediately of your faith in Christ and of your love for others? Is that the first thing that people think of when they think of you? It is significant that the Roman church was not as a result of Paul's labors, but that didn't matter to Paul. He rejoiced to hear of God working no matter who was responsible for it. Paul wasn't out to build an empire for himself. He had not been to Rome. He could not claim any credit for any growth that was going on there, but he rejoiced in it. When you you see God working in other churches in the county or other places, do you rejoice because God is at work? Do, Do you rejoice because even though you have no part of that, You're not in it. Do you rejoice because God is doing a work? Paul is an unusual man. He doesn't care about competing with others. He doesn't really care who gets the credit. He doesn't care who gets the glory as long as God gets it. Paul is only concerned that God be glorified. Nothing else matters to him. How much better off would all of us be if our main concern in life was the glory of God? And let whatever happens after that happen. Uh, We should rejoice that the gospel is spreading. We should rejoice and thank God and be encouraged when others are taking the gospel to those around them. Serving saints spread the gospel. And they rejoice when they hear that it is being spread by others. And then verses 9 and 10, saints serve God as they wait on him in prayer. The word translated serve here means worshipful service. The Bible, the Bible has a number of lists of spiritual gifts, and this is not a sermon on spiritual gifts. We're not going to go into that. And they are divided in various ways by any number of theologians. Uh, But if you want to just give a general division of gifts, I would divide them into speaking gifts and serving gifts. And it is the speaking gifts that generally gets the most attention. I've I've often wondered through the years how many men in rural areas surrender to preach who can't preach. I I had a professor in college one time who told us, he said, uh, God doesn't call anyone to preach, he can't preach. And, you know, one of us said, oh, no, 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 you know, we got, we got Dr. Joe Blow up here, not doctor, we got Joe Blow up here, and he's been at this church for 25 years, he can't preach a lick. And Dr. Hunter said, God doesn't call anybody to preach, can't preach. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, wh- what is a call to preach but a realization that God has given you the gift of pastor teacher? And that you are able to expound the scriptures and to teach them. And I've thought about that over over the years. and By looking at me you can tell I've had a lot of years to think. And I've decided the reason that is because we exalt the speaking gifts in the church to where we make men who cannot speak feel as if though they are not valuable. As if they don't matter. If they can't teach a Sunday school class or if they can't speak from the pulpit there's nowhere to serve God. And yet, there's all kinds of other gifts. The gifts of helps. I've, I've often thought about the gift of helps. And what is encompassed under that? And I've, I've come to a, a conclusion on that. If you don't like it, please don't tell me because I'm satisfied with where I'm at. But I think, as I, I a lot of people have natural talents that are not spiritual gifts. You know, singing is not a spiritual gift. It's a natural talent. But if you have that natural talent and you use it for the glory of God, I think that comes under the gift of helps. It certainly helps me when I hear those in this building who can sing, who have that natural talent and they're using that talent for the glory of God, then I'm I'm strengthened. I, I am encouraged and I rejoice and it makes me a better Christian. Uh, I think Think of a man who who has uh, a natural talent for fixing stuff. And Doug's the first thing that comes to my mind here because I've told people Doug Gentry can fix anything. Now, Doug doesn't want to come up here and preach no sermons, but there's no telling how much money he and Doyle have saved this church in the last ten years by fixing stuff. They have a natural talent. To fix things. I have a natural talent of destruction. You know, no matter what, you know, I you know, no matter what I do, if I start to work on it, I break it. You know. But they can fix things. They have that natural talent, but they're used of God. They they use those talents for the glory of God, and it strengthens the church. Last year, last year we replaced all the pew Bibles in the building. It cost about $1,300. Bought them over a three or four month period of time. <laughs> Lynn said, where do I budget this? I said, equipment and repairs. I mean, what's more valuable equipment in the building but a Bible? But we were able to buy those Bibles because these men were giving their time and their talent to help so that the money was available to pay for the Bibles. Whatever you can do, do to the glory of God. We like to separate the sacred and the secular. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, couldn't be nothing more mundane than eating or drinking, but he says whatever you do, do it to the glory of God and thereby serve God and serve the saints. Whatever our service is, It should be offered up for his name's sake, as it says in verse 5. And God says, I serve with my spirit. It means his service comes from the inner man. He doesn't do it because he feels some sense of guilt. He does it because he is motivated by the spirit of God. Your service, do you do it to receive affirmation from others? Or do you do it because you know it pleases God? You see, if, if your motive is to please God, it doesn't matter if you ever get any credit for it or not. That's okay. If God is pleased. And what is the method we use in our service? What is the method that is used? Oftentimes our methods today in the church come from the business world or worldly psychology. I, I remember reading... An article many years ago about a man who built a mega church just outside of Chicago. And he said in the article, my family was in the produce business. I simply took the principles that we had used to sell tomatoes and started selling the gospel. All kinds of churches copied that church. It became the standard. And about two or three years ago they admitted that they were wrong that their methods were just not right that they did they did not bring glory to God but rather to man do we use spiritual methods when we are serving the world scoffs at that the world laughs but paul said that god has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise god has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong the gospel is a spiritual Method. Paul says that he serves God in his spirit in the gospel of his Son, and he says in verse sixteen that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It is only the gospel that can transform sinners. Now you can make converts with marketing strategy, just like you can sell tomatoes with a good marketing strategy. But only the gospel can transform sinners into saints. And yet many church growth experts today will flatly tell you that you cannot have a church where you just preach the gospel and you talk about sin and you talk about repentance and you use words like justification, and propitiation. No, people don't understand those big words and so you can't use them. You've got to build up people's self-esteem. You've got to talk about what is relevant. What is more relevant than life and death? What is more relevant than knowing that you are right before a holy God? And that when you die, you know that you go to be with him. It is the gospel. That is a simple method for saving sinners that God uses. Prayer. Is a spiritual method. Paul said he mentions you often in prayer. The church is more today into techniques than it is into prayer. I've often said that prayer is one of the most difficult things that I do as a Christian. It's much easier to teach a seminar on prayer than it is to pray. Because prayer brings the power of God to bear against your problems. Worry doesn't do anything. You know, just learning about prayer, that's good. Learning about prayer is good, but if you don't pray, it's useless. You know, you've got to pray. There is a a proper place for using good techniques. But are we calling on God? Are we bringing the power of God against our problems? But why does God, why does Paul call God as his witness with regard to his unceasing prayers for those in Rome? He doesn't know them. He's been accused of doing things that he hasn't done. And so he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. The older that I get, the more the more it humbles me when someone says, I'm praying for you. Thank you. You, You're taking time to pray for me. Out of all the things you have to do in a day, you prayed for me today. You mentioned me in your prayers. That's awesome. I mean, that literally is awesome. Think about it. When someone says, I'm praying for you, or are you humbled by that? Do you realize what is involved there? And how and how often we talk about praying rather than praying? One of my pet peeves in the church has always been when we have a prayer meeting. You've been in a lot of prayer meetings, have you not? And we spend twenty-five minutes taking prayer requests and three minutes praying. I've always thought that should be turned around. I always thought, you know, we ought to take about three minutes to take the request and pray for 25. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't wouldn't, you know, wouldn't that work better? Paul also reveals here some helpful lessons about prayer. We we understand from these verses that Paul had delays and frustrations with regard to answers to his prayers. He says that he'd prayed often that. He might be able to go to Rome. And he made plans to do so. But so far his prayers have been frustrated. Sometimes we think that something must be wrong with our prayer life. If we don't get instant answers. But Paul always didn't get instant answers. He persevered in prayer. And then when he finally did get an answer about going to Rome. It wasn't the way he prayed for it. That leads to a second lesson. Often God answers through delays or roundabout ways. That we don't envision. Paul says that he had prayed that he could come to Rome. Now think about that. Paul did eventually get to Rome. But not by a straight path. How did he get to Rome? He's arrested in Jerusalem. Falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple. He spent more than two years in custody in Caesarea. Because the governor wanted to bribe. And to please the Jews. And although he should have been freed. There was nothing that he had done wrong. They wanted to send him back to Jerusalem where he knew the Jews would kill him and so he appealed to Caesar. And so he is put on a ship that wrecks, sinks and he spends a winter on Malta and finally comes to Rome in chains. It wasn't, I want to go to Rome, presto, I'm in Rome. He got to Rome but it was a roundabout way to get there. And thirdly, we must always submit our prayers to the will of God. Why did Paul have to go through all of that to get to Rome? Wasn't it a good thing for this great apostle to preach in the, in the greatest city of the first century? I mean, wouldn't that be a great thing? Yeah, you know, but God's thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, he doesn't think the way that we think. In this instance, Paul went to Jerusalem, you remember, in spite of a warning from the Holy Spirit that he would be arrested. He rejected the plea of his friends and insisted on going. He said, the will of the Lord be done. Although there are some that disagree, I think Paul made a mistake here. You may remember 15, 20 years ago when I preached through the book of Acts. Or maybe you won't remember. But anyway... I preached a sermon called When God's Best Man Misses God's Best Plan. I liked that title. I did. But I think Paul made a mistake. He he should have listened to the Holy Spirit and to his friends. He goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested because of these false accusations. Spend two, spends two years in prison because of the sins of a pagan governor. But in all of that God was answering his prayer to take him to Rome. So here's a lesson for us to pray. When we pray, always be subject to God's will. If he doesn't answer exactly as you thought he would, or if the timing doesn't come when you thought it should, continue to submit to his will. I've prayed for some things in my life that God did them, but they came about in a way that totally surprised me. I had no idea that it would happen that way. In his commentary on the book of Romans, Dr. James Boyce suggests three reasons why sometimes our prayers go unanswered. First, he says, unanswered prayer may be God's way of teaching us that we are not as necessary to the work as we think we are. All of us, of course, you know, think we're indispensable. You know, we cannot be replaced. You know, we're absolutely indispensable in whatever we do. A lot of times God answers prayer in a way that teaches us that is not true. That the work can go on without us. Paul was the greatest of all the apostles. I mean he wrote half the New Testament. And yet he had not been to the greatest city in the world. Until finally he gets there in that roundabout way. And secondly God may not answer our prayers because he has other work for us to do. His the work of Paul in Greece and Asia and even in Caesarea. He preaches the gospel to Felix and to Festus and others. And that was a part of God's sovereign plan for Paul. If God has you stalled in a frustrating situation, serve him there. Just serve him there. A few years ago, actually several years ago, I've told you this. Some 35 years ago, I'd left the church. I had no place to go. And a pulpit committee from way down in Athens, Tennessee came to hear me. And so they said, well, you know, you, you're a halfway decent preacher. We'd, you know, we'd like to talk to you further. And so a friend of mine said to me, what are you going to do? I said, I'm, I'm going to go down there. You know, well, these people have had some problems with their previous pastor. I said, I had some problems with my previous church. That'll make us even. You know, and, and, and he said, well, what do you, what do you, doing? I said, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to treat it like an interim. It's going to be an interim. I'll just stay until they run me off. Okay, that's been almost 34 years. If you find yourself in a frustrating situation, just serve God where you're at until God opens up something else. Thirdly, there may be spiritual warfare, warfare that you know nothing about. We're told in the book of Daniel that Daniel's prayers were, de- were delayed because of a conflict between a demon and an angel. And Paul says that our unseen spiritual conflict is against powers in heavenly places. So we often don't know why our prayers are not answered quickly in the way that we envision. But we've got to trust God and submit to his will. Thirdly here, serving saints long for fellowship with other saints for the purpose of effective ministry. Someone has pointed out that it's good that Paul was delayed and hindered in going to Rome like he was or we might not have the book of Romans. We have that because of his delay. These verses here in verses 11, 12, and 13 reveal Paul's heart for these believers. Notice, That in order to have an effective ministry, you first of all must have warm personal relationships. Paul longed to see these saints. He expresses his heartfelt desire to be with other believers. He loves them, even though he's not seen them. The aim of effective ministry is to see others established in the faith. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians who were new in their faith and going through some trials and said, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Paul said, I want you to stand fast. I want you to be growing in the Lord. And third, the sphere of effective ministry is spiritual gifts. Paul wanted to go to Rome, he said, to impart some spiritual gift to them. What does that mean? Because the Bible plainly says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to each person just as he will. I don't think that Paul could go there and give them some spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit had not already given them. I think what he means is he wants to go to Rome to use the gift of apostolic preaching and proclamation that God had given him in order to build them up in their faith. And they would use their gifts to build him up in the faith. As Paul exercised his gift of teaching, as they exercised their gifts, each of them would be built up. And the the spirit of effective ministry is mutual encouragement. Paul says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. It is encouraging to me that you come to this building this morning to worship God. It encourages me. I mean, you know, it'd be pretty lonely if, you know, I was here and my wife were the only one, you know, that came to listen to me. You know, if you weren't here, she might not come. I don't know. But it's an encouragement. I'm always encouraged by people who want to hear the Word of God. You know, if God has given each of us a role here this morning, if if, if I am to use my gift of speaking, and you are to use your gifts, whatever they may be, then we are mutually encouraged. And the goal of effective ministry is to bear fruit. Paul wanted to obtain some fruit among them. I think he's referring both to new converts who would come to faith in Christ under his preaching in Rome, but also... Faith can refer, the fruit can refer to any blessing or benefit that comes by God working through us to encourage others. And then finally, serving saints are debtors to all people. I am under obligation translates a phrase that is literally, I am a debtor. And by Greeks and barbarians, he means the whole world because the Jews divided the whole world into Greeks and barbarians. Paul says to the wise and the foolish. He said, I have an obligation to proclaim the gospel to everybody that I come in contact with. Every human being needs to hear the gospel. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all are in need of a Savior. Uh, you, whenever you meet a sinner, which is everybody you owe it to them to share the gospel with them because god has made you a recipient of his grace and you are under that debt so paul is eager to preach the gospel in rome so serving saints all of us are to be serving saints whatever your talent whatever your gift you are use it you are to use it in the kingdom for the glory of god for the glory of god and for the good of others, to build them up. Serving saints serve God sincerely in the gospel as they wait on him in prayer. We long to be with the other saints for the purpose of effective ministry. And we are debtors to all men to take the gospel to them. If you are a Christian this morning, you're a saint. You're one of those that God has set apart for his glory. And it is incumbent upon you to serve. We're going to.